Good evening. Last week we were uh, here in the evening and we uh, did a study on the blessed hope of the church, the promise of the return of Christ, and more specifically on the doctrine of imminency, uh, the fact that Christ could suddenly return at any moment. And I introduced that uh, topic uh, because the main point of the doctrine is that it gives God's people hope. And it's a truth that's supposed to be an encouragement to us. Uh, again, the major focus or constant theme uh, that permeates our hearts and minds and our lives, uh, the fact that there's nothing else that needs to happen on the prophetic calendar before the return of Christ. And that we need to be seeking the things above where Christ is, setting our things on our, our minds on those things and not on the things of the earth. Uh, because no doubt we live in troubling times and it's very easy for us to get caught up into the uh, affairs of the world in a world that's seemingly growing darker by the moment. Now, last week's study was really an introduction to what I wanted to consider tonight. That being the rapture of the church, uh, the sudden return of Christ to gather his church before the time of the tribulation where the church is suddenly caught up in the air to meet Christ and to be with him, and from that moment forward always be with the Lord. Now, right up front, I have to acknowledge the fact that there's a bad rap on the rapture. It's a doctrine that's not uh, often believed. It's a doctrine that's often ridiculed, both inside and outside the church. I think in part because it's been so sensationalized over the last uh, few years by a series of movies and then a series of fictional, quote-unquote, end-time books. It's a doctrine that many people think lacks uh, doctrinal or scriptural support. Uh, It's a doctrine that many people think is obscure. It's only seen in a few passages of scripture, and those passages are up to debate as to their meaning. That's the way the argument goes. Many people think the doctrine of the rapture wasn't discovered until about 190 years ago or so, uh, therefore, it's a late doctrine, and therefore probably not true. Again, that's the that's the argument. The doctrine is a hoax. Supposedly, nobody historically ever taught the doctrine of the rapture during the first 18 centuries of the church until 1830, where a woman named Margaret MacDonald uh, proclaimed this doctrine while she was having a trance, uh, while she was in a trance having a vision. And that's the questionable, fallacious teaching that, again, that is picked up, and that teaching, that fallacious teaching, was picked up and propagated by a a Plymouth Brethren, a guy named John Darby. At least that's how the story goes, which is um, not only historically inaccurate, but it's a story that's uh, widely believed. The truth is the teaching from church history is derived from the Scripture, and the fact is that a number of people who lived more than a thousand years uh, before 1830, repeatedly taught the doctrine, which is known as the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Probably most notably, the teaching of the early church, uh, po- probably most notably, the teaching of an early church theologian, a guy named uh, Ephraim of uh, the Syrian, who lived from about 306 to 373. He was a major theologian, he was a scholar, a prolific author in his time, and a defender of biblical faith against a number of heresies of his day, including the Arians, who... Uh, challenge the deity of Christ. Uh, Ephraim taught very clearly on the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, uh, where Christ would return and take his elect saints to heaven and escape the coming tribulation. He also taught that the Jewish Antichrist would come, who would come and rule a revived Roman Empire in a literal great tribulation of 1260 days with a rebuilt temple and uh, in, in Jerusalem and two witnesses. Now, I only mention that because uh, it's somewhat of a side point, because I want to re- refute or confront that ridiculous story about Darby inventing this doctrine from some woman who's in a trance, which he didn't do. And I mentioned this guy Ephraim as one of the examples of many examples historically 
found in the teaching of the church. There are other examples in the early church of people understanding this doctrine and teaching the pre-tribulational rapture before Ephraim again, who died in 373. As an example, there's an ancient writing known as the Shepherd of Hermes, which is uh, circa 140, also the teaching of Irenaeus about 180 uh, A.D., and just a couple examples of those people teaching in the church, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. So the claim that the doctrine was never known historically until 1830 in the church is an absolutely false claim, and I think you have to realize that. The reality is whether the church, in fact, taught something uh, in the first century or didn't teach something in the first century, that doesn't necessarily make it true. Likewise, if the church did not teach something until the 20th century, that doesn't necessarily make it false. History of the teaching of the church is not the basis to determine doctrinal truth. God's word is. And I say that again. History of the church or historical teaching of the church is not the basis to determine truth. The scripture is. God's word is the standard. Now, as you look at the history of the church, obviously there are times where God has given greater understanding and more uh, emphasis upon certain doctrinal issues to bring clarity to his truth. Because if you stop and think about it, we have the entirety of the Bible. right? We have everything that is in the Bible, but we don't absolutely understand everything that's in the Bible. We're always studying. We're always being uh, further enlightened. We're always learning. Same thing is true in the history of the church, especially for the example of the doctrine of justification by faith. We talked on that uh, a number of years ago uh, for a long period of time, uh, the time of the Reformation. It was a doctrine that was lost for a long period of time and then recovered, and it was recovered because people took up the Bible and began to read. Right? So revelation is the standard, not what the church teaches, not what any pastor teaches, not what any teacher teaches, not what any, right? It's the, God's word is the standard. What God says is always the standard. Now, nevertheless, there are many people whose perception on the rapture is that it lacks scriptural support. It's a laughable idea that no rational person would ever believe or promote some kind of crazy uh, doctrine where people fly up in the air. They would say that the doctrine has no purpose biblically other than just to get us out of uh, trouble so the church doesn't have to go through the tribulation. Uh, and, and so it's just, they would say, it's insanely untrue. It's a doctrine many people would say we shouldn't even consider and again, that's sadly the line of thinking that's captured much of modern uh, church. And, and again, that line of thinking is not true biblically. Because the doctrine of the rapture is a biblical doctrine. It's not only a biblical doctrine, it's a wonderful doctrine. And like every other doctrine in the Bible, it has a purpose. And its purpose is to glorify God. Its purpose is to glorify God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And its purpose is to edify or to build up the saints. It's a doctrine that gives God's people confidence, that gives God's people hope. And it's a doctrine that showcases God's wisdom and God's glory. Now, it is a doctrine, if you're going to understand it, that requires precision in study. It requires that you pay close attention to words that are spoken in a text of Scripture. It's a doctrine that acknowledges progressive revelation, the fact that God reveals truth to us one step at a time, step by step, not all at once. And again, it's a doctrine that is meant to give us as believers a tremendous, tremendous amount of hope and confidence and encouragement in, in difficult times. And that's why I bring it up. That's why I brought up eminency, because I knew where I was going to go this week. I want us to focus on Christ, not on the chaos in the world. We need hope, not more darkness. 
right? We, we don't need to think about the things that are going on in the world uh, to the extent that we can't control them anyway, and they're God's sovereign purposes and plans, so we glorify God in Christ. I don't want us to think on, on the world. I want us to think on Christ. I, want, I don't want us to think on the horrors of hell on earth that are coming during the time of the tribulation because the Bible teaches very clearly the church is not going to be there. Very clearly, 1 Thessalonians 5, nine. If words mean anything and God knows how to speak. Alright? 1 Thessalonians 5.9. Go ahead and turn there because you're going to turn there anyway. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not appointed His church for wrath. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5.9. God does not pour out His wrath upon the church. God pours out his wrath on the disobedient, the rebellious. Both Gentiles and those from the nation of Israel at the time of the tribulation, not upon the church. Now the reason why God doesn't pour out his wrath upon the church is because God poured out his wrath upon Christ, upon Calvary's cross, Christ who took our place, Christ who stood as our substitute. God poured out his wrath upon Christ so he wouldn't have to pour out his wrath on us. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God will never pour out wrath upon his church. Because God does not want our destruction, God wants our what? Salvation, our deliverance. Go back just a few uh, pages to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. First Thessalonians 1.10 says, We wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. First Thessalonians 1.10 That is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If words mean anything, and God knows how to speak, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. God cherishes the church. Because he purchased it at a very high cost. It was by the purchased by the shed blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves the church, treasures the church. He cares for the church because the church is the beloved bride of his son. God is not going to pour out his wrath upon the church at the time of the tribulation. Wrath belongs to the unbelieving. Wrath belongs to the unbelieving nation. Wrath belongs to the unbelieving Israel. And it's true, when the tribulation comes, it's going to be a terrible time of judgment upon the Gentiles to, as Daniel says, to make an end of wickedness in the wicked ones. Now, part of the purpose of the seven-year tribulation is not just wrath being poured out in unbelieving, uh, unbelieving again, of the nations and of Israel, but part of the purpose of the seven-year year, uh, seven period of tribulation is evangelistic. It's going to be a tremendous worldwide revival. God's going to evangelize the world through the means of 144,000 Jewish evangelists and two witnesses and an angel that preaches the eternal gospel. God's going to fulfill his promises to Israel. And most importantly, in the time of the tribulation, it is a time for the conversion of Israel. Because biblically, the tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. And again, its primary purpose is not just to judge the wicked. Its primary purpose is to bring the nation of Israel to repentance. To look upon Jesus whom they've mourned, uh, whom they've pierced and mourned. To bring them to a place where they realize that Jesus is indeed the Messiah as we've been looking at uh, in the mornings. Listen to Deuteronomy 429. 
But from there, you will seek the Lord, your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you're in distress and all those things have come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord, your God, and listen to his voice. Now, I ask you just one very simple question. Who is he talking to? Well, who's there? Church isn't there. He's talking to the Jewish nation, right? You will seek the Lord your God. You will find him when you search for him with all your heart and your soul. And when you are in distress and all those things will come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. That's the first reference in the Bible to the time of the tribulation as it relates to the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 30, verse 4. These are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror and of dread, and there is no peace. Verse 7 of that chapter, Alas, for the day is great, there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, but he'll be saved from it. Now we talked about this before, uh, previously a few years back, but the tribulation is known biblically as Daniel's 70th week. Again, it's the 70th week of Daniel as it relates to the nation of Israel. Daniel 9, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Daniel 12, 1, there will be times of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, until the time your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. Many other passages in the Old Testament talk about the tribulation. The final cataclysmic, climactic judgment against the nation of Israel, followed by a time of restoration. Joel 2, Zephaniah 1, Zechariah 13 uh, through 14. The tribulation as it relates to Israel is the time of Jacob's distress, not the church's. Got to understand that. Right? Because the church is not in the Old Testament. Now the truth... Uh, is uh, that unbelieving Israel, again, in the future, the time of the tribulation, uh, is going to be an unprecedented time of difficulty. Matthew 24, verse 15. Then you who are alive, right? You who are alive at the time. He's talking about the time of the tribulation. And when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing by the holy place, and the parentheses, let the reader understand, then you better run, basically, is what he's saying. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, right? Don't go back to your house. Don't get your stuff. Uh, pray that you're not with a child, right? That your travel may not be hindered. Run and run as fast as you can. Verse 21, there will be a great tribulation that has not occurred, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, and elect in this context, Matthew 24, it's not the church, it's Israel. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The tribulation, what the tribulation does, is it puts Israel right back in the center stage of history, if you will. Now, the church has already repented. And the church has paid the redemptive price, or Christ has paid the redemptive price for his church, that being his shed blood. Prior to the day of Pentecost, there's no church. The nation of Israel, I'll say that again, prior to the day of Pentecost, there's no church. Church begins at Pentecost. The nation of Israel began when God called Abram or Abraham to himself in Genesis 12. The church began in Acts chapter 2. The two groups are separate. Both groups are unique in the history of God's redemptive plan, but Israel and the church are not the same. The church is not the new Israel, nor the spiritual Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. Because God has a very definite plan for Israel, and God has a very definite plan for the church. 
In the beginning, we understand that God was working through the nation of Israel, and through that nation, God promised that he would send a Messiah, and that Messiah would be a blessing to the world. So the nation was supposed to be the visible vehicle, right? God's vehicle to reach the world with a message of hope, that there was a coming Messiah, one who would undo the, the fall, the, the curse of sin, one who would be the Redeemer. And not only that, but one who would be the substitute who would come and pay for man's sins in order that God and man might be reconciled. But when Messiah came, there was also a promise in the Old Testament that when Messiah would come, there would always be a, a promise that he would also set up a kingdom. And that's what the nation of Israel expected. That's what they were looking for. There's nowhere in the Old Testament that you ever see that Israel was referred to as a body, that they're looked to be placed into a body like the church is being placed into the body of Christ. They were looking for a kingdom. That's why when Jesus showed up uh, on the scene historically, he was always saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Messiah came, and what happened? What What did the nation do? Well, of course, you know the story. They rejected him. They killed him. They crucified their king. And for the moment, God set aside the nation of Israel and began to deal with the Gentiles. That's the church, a new body historically, a distinct body of believers, separate from the nation of Israel, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, baptized by the Holy Spirit, and then placed into one body, the body of Christ. So the church begins at Pentecost, and it ends historically at the rapture of the church. Because the church has to be removed at the end to again put Israel back on the center stage of history, if you will. Because God has made certain promises to the nation of Israel that he will not uh, go back on. He won't reject his word. And God, again, will deal with the nation of Israel, that nation that rejected him. So he's got to move the Gentiles, right? The the called out ones, uh, when he set the nation of Israel aside, he went to the Gentiles. And then when he's finished with the Gentiles in the time of the church, he's going to go back and deal with Israel again. And I want you to see this. I'm not making it up. Take your Bible and turn over to to Romans chapter 11. If God can speak and words mean anything. Romans chapter 11. Talk about this a lot here, I know. Because it comes up a lot. God has not rejected the nation of Israel. That's what it clearly teaches through Paul, through the Holy Spirit, from the heart of God himself. Romans 11, verse 1. Paul. I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? May it never be. It's the strongest form of negation in the Greek. I wonder who God's people are. For I too am an Israelite. Huh. A descendant of Abraham. Of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Drop down to verse 11. I say, I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, the salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. If their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches to the Gentiles, how much more their fulfillment be? I just don't know it can get any clearer than that. God has a plan for the future of the nation of Israel. Verse 25, I don't want you, uh, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as is written. Uh, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. 
And this is my covenant with them. Who? Israel. That's what we're talking about. Then I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. If you are someone who is struggling with this issue and trying to figure out the difference, or if there is a difference between Israel and the church, I would encourage you to put down your theology book, put down your favorite writer, and take up God's word and read God's word. And I say that with the utmost kindness and compassion, because I used to be one of you. Until I took up God's word. I understand reading reformed writers. And again, I understand progressive revelation and I understand uh, history in the church and why certain doctrines captured the church at certain times. But the history of the church and our favorite reformed writer is not the standard, it's God's word. What does God's word say? If words mean anything and God can speak clearly, which I'm pretty sure he can, it lays it out right there in Romans 11 that God's not done with Israel. Put down your theology book, put down your favorite author, and take up God's word. Truth is, one day Israel will be saved. One day they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they'll mourn. One day Israel will be grafted back into the blessings of God after the time of the tribulation, after the fullness of the time of the Gentiles. Again, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he, may it never be. I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, I say that all to make sure that we understand when we're looking at the doctrine we're looking at tonight, we understand there's a difference between the church and Israel. The church is a parenthesis, if you want, during the time of the blindness of the hardness of Israel until... They say, Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now we have to understand that. It's a fundamental biblical truth. There's a difference between Israel and the church. And we have to understand that if we're going to fully understand and fully appreciate the biblical doctrine of the rapture. Another fundamental principle that you have to understand when trying to understand the doctrine of the rapture is we need to understand that the rapture of the church and the second coming are two different things, two different issues. I don't have time to go into it tonight, but there are at least 15 differences between Christ's coming, listen, for his church in the rapture and the second coming at the time, at the end of the tribulation where he comes to judge the nations. 15 differences between the rapture of the church and the second coming in which Christ comes and he defeats the rebellious armies of the world. He casts Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire, binds Satan over for a thousand years until he finally casts him into the lake of fire eternally. And the return of Christ, which we talked about last week, did we not? Which is undoubtedly a biblically true doctrine, is a two-phased event, if you will. The day, the, the return of Christ begins at the rapture of the church, which starts what is known biblically as the day of the Lord. That's the seven-year period of time known as the tribulation. One author says this, the day of the Lord is the event that marks the end of man's day. As God acts in judgment to take back direct control of the earth from the usurpers, both human and demonic, who presently rule it. Again, it will be an unprecedented time of cataclysmic judgment upon all, all, uh, upon all unrepentant sinners. Now, at the end of the seven-year time of the tribulation, Christ returns. That's the second coming. He comes as a conquering king, and he comes to bring ultimate final destruction upon all of his enemies. The rapture is imminent. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T, imminent. Meaning that it could happen at any time. Remember, I told you it was like hanging over our heads. It's imminent. And it is known biblically as the blessed hope of the church. And the rapture is for believers, for believers only. 
It's Christ coming for his church. And it occurs prior, prior to the time of the tribulation. Whereas the second coming can't happen for at least seven years. It occurs at the end of the seven-year period, and it, the uh, second coming of Christ includes unbelievers who will be judged for rejecting Christ. So again, the rapture of the church and the second coming are two different things. Next fundamental principle, we're going to understand this doctrine of the rapture is this. You're going to like this one. Everybody believes in the rapture. Everybody believes in the rapture. You say, I don't. This is crazy. I don't. No, you do. Guarantee you, you do. Everybody believes in the rapture if you are a Christian. Everybody believes in the rapture if they're a Christian because at the heart of the rapture is the resurrection. And all Christians believe in the resurrection because it's a core gospel truth. First uh, Corinthians 15, verse 13, If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Do you believe in the resurrection? Better. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Is that resurrection? We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The core, at the core understanding of the rapture is the resurrection. It's the heart of the rapture. To deny the resurrection is to deny biblical Christianity. To deny the resurrection is to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 4.17 We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with those to meet them in the clouds, uh, the, with the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall be with the Lord always. Comfort one another with these words. Again, the doctrine of the rapture is a doctrine of comfort. It's a doctrine of hope. No other religion on the planet has anything similar to offer for those who've lost a loved one or are grieving. Because by the promise of God through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit through the Scripture, uh, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, again, that gives us hope. Christ is coming again. With a shout from heaven, the dead in Christ will rise from the grave. Again, that's the promise of a resurrection. We're going to be transformed. We're going to be taken up together with him and with our loved ones. So that means that we're going to see our loved ones who have passed away. I'll get to the passage in, in particular, but I'm just giving you that an overview. We have that hope, do we not? Do we not believe that we're going to be raised from the dead? Do we not believe that we'll see the, uh, our loved ones who have passed away? So the doctrine of the rapture has a purpose. It glorifies God, it glorifies Christ, and it encourages God's people. The rapture is imminent. Again, it hangs over our heads. It could happen at any moment. <clears throat> the rapture is different than the second coming because the rapture is about believers being taken up to Christ, not unbelievers facing judgment. The rapture has to do with the church, not the nation of Israel. And all true believers believe in the rapture, whether they realize it or not, because at the heart of the rapture is the resurrection. Now, I said previously that God will never pour out his wrath upon the church. He does not want our deliverance, or he does not want our destruction, he wants our deliverance. Again, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for 
wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, without question, the time of the tribulation is an unprecedented time of judgment. But just stop and think when God brings worldwide cataclysmic judgment on the earth, just think historically how he has uh, dealt with people. Worldwide judgments in the past. For example, Genesis chapter 6. Because the wickedness on the earth was so great, God said, I'm going to bring a worldwide flood and devastate the earth, wipe out all life. But what did God do before the flood? He removed those who belonged to him, right? Noah and his family. He delivered them. He rescued them from his coming wrath. They were delivered in the ark, which is a picture of salvation that's found in Christ. God protects his own. Divine wrath, therefore, is the destiny of the unbeliever, not the believer. Romans 5.8 God demonstrated his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If words mean anything and God knows how to speak, it's pretty clear. What happened when God decided that he was going to judge the ungodly cities of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? He removed Lot. What happened before he destroyed Jericho? He delivered Rahab from that doomed city. Godly wrath is designed as a judgment upon the unbeliever. God delivers believers from divine wrath. Likewise, God is going to deliver the church in the future at before the time of the tribulation. In fact, there's no mention of the church in any biblical passage dealing with the future time of the tribulation. Only promises that God will deliver from that judgment to come, from that work of divine wrath that is being poured out on the unbelieving world. It's a repeated promise. It's a repeated promise in the New Testament that Jesus says God delivers his church. God rescues his church from the wrath to come. Just immediately before the time of the tribulation, there's a church. It's called the Church of Philadelphia. It's a church, if you might remember, the, in the book of the Revelation, it's a good church. It's a pure church. Christ has no condemning words against that church. Christ says to the church of Philadelphia, Revelation 3.10, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from... The hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. So the true church, true believers, Christ says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. The promise of Christ to the church in Philadelphia is they will be kept not in, but kept from, delivered from. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world. That promise to Christ, to the church of Philadelphia, is a very clear promise that the church is not going to enter into the time of the tribulation. I will keep you from the hour of testing, that the hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test, here's the phrase, those who dwell upon the earth. Now that reference to those who dwell upon the earth is not a reference to a geographical location. It's a reference to the character of the people. The earth dwellers. The rebels. Those who are part of the world system, if you will, worldlings. So the promise of Christ is to keep the church out of that time of the tribulation. Again, in fact, you won't find the church mentioned anywhere during the time of um, uh, the tribulation in the future that's spelled out in the book of Revelation. Church is not mentioned from chapter 4 through 19. The chapter 4 through 19 gives explicit details concerning the time of the tribulation. Israel's mentioned, unsaved Gentiles are mentioned, but the church is not mentioned. Because God has promised to deliver the church from that hour of testing. Why? Because he loves them. 
because of his love for them, his love for Christ. The church simply does not fit into God's purposes for the tribulation. Because the purpose of the tribulation, in part, is to judge the unbelieving world and then to resume, God, for him to resume his plans for the nation of Israel. Now, that promise of keeping the church out of the time of the tribulation is not a promise for the false church, because just a few verses on in Revelation 3 and 14, to the church at Laodicea, he writes, I know your deeds, I know that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold, uh, cold or hot, and because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Right, so the true church has promised deliverance from the wrath to come, where the false church has promised to be vomited out of the mouth of Christ. There's a distinction. So the church is not going to go through the time of the tribulation. The church, again, is vastly different from the nation of Israel. They're two separate entities. And the rapture of the church is completely different from the second coming of Christ. Before the time of the tribulation, Christ will terminate the age of the church. He will remove the church out of this world, or he will rapture the church out of the world. All right? I'm just giving you foundational principles, things to think about. We'll get into a text here in a second. All right? I say that all by way of telling you this next point. The term rapture is not in the Bible. Ah, there you go. I knew. I knew you'd eventually spill the beans. It's not a biblical doctrine. Right? The, the critic says, right? The term rapture is not in the Bible. Well, that's tremendous. What a great argument. It's no more greater of an argument to say the fact that the term uh, Trinity, because the term Trinity is not in the Bible, we don't believe that God is three in one. Right? We don't believe that. No, we believe that. It's a triune God. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. Right? That doesn't disprove the doctrine. Rapture, that word rapture comes from the Latin word rapturo. Uh, the Greek word, listen, is harpazo. Harpazo. It means to be caught up. It means to be snatched uh, away, taken away. In fact, it happens to be used in the Bible a couple times. And I want you to see this. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 39. Acts chapter 8, verse 39, describes how the Holy Spirit caught up or snatched away Philip near Gaza and then brought him to Caesarea. Acts chapter 8, verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Harpazo, rapture, Right? Sneak, uh, seize, catch away, snatch away. They came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Ar- Arzados. It's probably about 30 miles away. It's best I could figure. And he passed through and kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now listen, people don't fly. I mean, we've got airplanes now, but they don't have airplanes these times. People in these days, they don't fly. They don't get instantly transported 30 miles away from where they just were. Except what? Philip did. If words mean anything, and God knows how to speak, right? How about 2 Corinthians? I know you're going through that in Sunday school, right? 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 2. This is a description of Paul's experience when he was caught up into the third heaven. Paul says, I know a man. I know a man in Christ. Who's the man? Well, you know, Paul doesn't say. Probably can guess. R.C. Sproul takes a guess. He thinks that Paul shaved this man whom he knew every morning. Right? 
I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up, harpazo, into the third heaven. Well, in the heavens, we have the atmospheric heaven, right? We have the place where the birds fly. We have the second heaven where the stars are located. Then you have the third heaven, uh, which is the place of God where God dwells. Such a man was caught up, harpazo, to the third heaven, verse 3. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or the, uh, apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Verse 4 was harpazo, caught up into paradise, heard inexpressible words, which man is not permitted to speak. Now listen, people don't get caught up, snatched away to heaven. But if the Bible is true, Paul did. And he traveled quite a bit further than Philip's being caught up. Right? Paul experiences his own little mini-rapture. So the claim that the idea of the rapture is not a biblical doctrine, that it's only promoted by crazy people, is just not true. And you can stay up in line and you can talk to Philip and Paul when you get to heaven. You can ask them if God's word is true. Now there are three primary passages in the New Testament that speak to the issue of the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51 through 57, and then John 14, 1 through 3. Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to cover all this tonight, but we'll come back to it, Lord willing, next time, because I think it's important to understand. So we're going to just do one of them, and we're going to do John 14. And I hope I don't give away all my good stuff when I get to John 14, but most of you will be so old by that time, you won't remember that I ever taught this. So it will be new. Right? That's one of the great things about growing old, I guess, and your mind not being sharp as it once was. A lot of things are new. Right? Watch that movie over and over. It's a new movie, right? John 14. In fact, go back to John 13. Just to kind of get a flow here where we're at. John 13.1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, Christ knows that his death is imminent, right? It's about to happen. It's coming. He has a tremendous love for the disciples. He wants them to understand what's going to happen next. Verse 5 of the chapter says, Out of love he washes his disciples' feet. Verse 11 says, He knew one whom he was washing their feet would betray him. For that reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. Verse 18, he says, I know the ones that I've chosen, but that is, uh, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his ha- uh, heel against me. Drop down to verse 21. Jesus said this, he became troubled, or when Jesus said this, uh, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another lost to know which one he was speaking. Right? I mean, again, the Lord loved them. They loved the the Lord, again, but in the midst of this uh, trying time uh, of his imminent departure, again, in condescending love, he washes the disciples' feet. He knows who's going to betray him. In fact, back up in verse 2, he says, During the supper of the devil, having already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So he knows. He knows, but the disciples don't know it's Judas. Verse 31. Therefore, when he'd gone out, the betrayer, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself and will glorify him immediately. Again, Christ knows his death is imminent. 
He knows that he will be most glorified by the cross because on the cross he'll be victorious over sin and Satan. Verse 33, little children, I'm with you a little bit longer. You shall, or I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me as I have said to the Jews. Now I say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 36, Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. I think Peter's a well-meaning guy. I think he's sincere, right? But again, the disciples are confused over the situation. Christ is going to leave. Christ says, you can't, where I'm going, you can't follow. And they're convinced that he's the Messiah. I've told you when we were studying through the book of Matthew, when it comes to this issue of the death of Christ, they have no concept of that. They have no category for that because they know he's the Messiah. And these guys that are following the disciples of Christ, they've given up absolutely everything to follow him. They've given up their livelihoods. They've given up their homes. They have been um, you know, kicked out of the synagogue. Now Christ says he's going to leave. What's the state of their hearts? It's gloomy. It's disconsolate. sad. Christ says he's leaving. They're not going to be able to follow him. And again, obviously, he's speaking about his death coming on the cross. So he senses their grief. Chapter 14, verse 1. Christ says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Right? With a tremendous amount of compassion, he tells them not to worry. Tells them to keep their hope, keep their faith. Keep their faith in him, keep their faith in God. Uh, he, he never let them down before, he's not going to let them down now. He's not going to do it in the future. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If so, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Where is his father's house? It's in heaven, right? We're not talking about the temple. We're talking where's his father's house. His father's house in, in heaven. The heavenly abode of God. Jesus is going to go, go to the father's right hand. He's going to go to the father's throne. He's going to sit at the right hand. Uh, his destiny is not earthly. It's heavenly. Daniel 7 verse 14 says he sits at his father's right hand until the father gives him a kingdom. For I go to prepare a place for you. Again, where did Christ go? He went to heaven. Verse 2 again, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. In the King James it says, many mansions. Mone is the word. doesn't necessarily mean mansions in the sense that we would understand the English word mansion. Some kind of expressive, expansive dwelling place. It just means the dwelling of God, the abode of God. It's the place where believers are going to go while waiting the conclusion of the events of the 70th week of Daniel. When they will return with Christ to the earth. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, the idea of preparation here is not he's talking about some kind of construction project. Boy, there's a few more believers than I thought. I've got to put a few more bedrooms and a bathroom and maybe a second loft and another. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking construction. He's talking about providing a temporary abode for the arrival of his bride, the church. The church is the bride of Christ. He's talking about providing a temporary residence for the arrival of his bride as per Jewish wedding customs. Now, perhaps if we were Jewish, we'd understand this a little better, but part of the preparation process was to go to prepare a place for the bride, right? There's going to be a wedding feast. And in the future, there's going to be a wedding feast that occurs with the, the bride of Christ, the church, just prior to his second coming. Verse 3, listen to the words, read the words. Words are important. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
if I go, if I go literally and physically, right? Isn't that what happened? He literally physically rose from the dead. He literally physically ascended. If I go literally and physically and depart from the earth to heaven, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, literally, physically, departing from heaven and coming to the earth. I'm going to go from the earth to heaven. If I go, I will come again from heaven to the earth. Now, it's present tense. I'll talk about that in a moment. He doesn't say that he's going to send angels. He says he's coming. He himself, personally, he's coming. Now, when you come to this passage, some commentators have attempted to interpret it to mean that Jesus is coming for believers at death. But that interpretation is not supported scripturally. Because the Bible doesn't talk about Christ coming when people die. Instead, it speaks about angels, perhaps, coming for believers, Luke 16, or Jesus awaiting the arrival of the believer in Acts 7, 56. But he says, I'll come. Literally, physically. I'll depart from heaven to the earth. And again, present tense. Why is it present tense versus future tense? Because in the Greek, when you wanted to say something with absolute uh, confidence, something that could never be refuted, something that was so positive, they would use the present uh, tense to verify a future reality, a future absolute. Essentially, it's a promise that says it's absolutely, absolutely certain what I say is true. It's going to happen. You know what? It's so certain that it's going to happen. It has already happened. I go... Prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself. Paralabano, uh, receive, take to, bring to oneself, make a companion. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, where, where is he? I can't remember. Where was he? Oh, thank you. He was in heaven. I, I'm glad you said that, man, because I couldn't remember. He was in heaven. I'm going to leave the earth, go to heaven. I'm going to come from heaven back to the earth so that I can take you where I am, right? There, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So again, what's he saying? Again, the most clear language possible, Christ is telling the disciples, don't worry. I know you're upset at the moment, but don't worry. Don't worry about the fact that I'm leaving, because I'm going to personally come back and get you. I'm going to personally come back and receive you to myself, and then I'm going to take you to my father's house. He is saying, Christ is saying, he's going to return, take his bride to the location that he's prepared, which again is not on the earth, it's in heaven. And once the bride is gathered, there'll be a time, the church, once the bride is gathered, there'll be a time of purification, it occurs at the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be a wedding feast, and then there'll come the second coming. Where I am, there you may be also, means that they will never be out of his presence. They're going to be wherever he is forever and ever. Now, again, that's in complete contrast to the second coming of Christ. Where at the second coming of Christ, he comes to literally destroy all of his enemies, and then he establishes his kingdom on the earth. And when Christ comes in the second coming, no one is coming from uh, the earth to heaven. No one is coming from the earth to heaven at Christ's second coming. Now, there's going to be saints during the time of the tribulation. There's going to be people saved. I just said that earlier. There's going to be a great time of a revival. There'll be people who will make it right towards the end of the, saved right at the time of the end of the the tribulation. They're going to go into the millennial kingdom. But no one is coming from earth to heaven. Because Christ, when he says uh, he returns, he is coming. Again, it's a promise that they can absolutely count on. He'll come for them from heaven to earth. 
He'll come for his disciples and for us. I'm going to put it a little bit in the future, right? New Testament believers. And he'll take us to be with him where he is. And again, where is he? It's his father's house. Now, the only category that that kind of a scenario can fit in is the rapture of the church. That's the only, that's the only scenario it can fit into. When Christ comes from heaven to earth at the time of his second coming, which is again different from the rapture of the church, everybody who is in heaven comes with him, who belongs to him. Everybody who belongs to him in heaven comes with him. Revelation nineteen fourteen, The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So at the second coming, no one goes to heaven. Everybody who is with him comes with him at the second coming. Now, you've got to understand this, that, uh, again, uh, the idea of going to the Father's house in heaven was completely foreign to the disciples' thinking at the time. Their hope was that when Messiah come, he would come and establish what? A kingdom. That's what they're looking for. They thought he would return, he would immediately establish an earthly kingdom, and they would remain there in this earthly sphere to reign with him. I think you can prove that pretty easily by the discussion that goes on in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, even after the time of the crucifixion, the time of the resurrection. And so they came, come together there asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? So again, understanding there's a, progr- a progress of revelation. God doesn't give us everything at once. This idea of going to the Father's house is totally foreign to the disciples. They have, at that time, in John 13, they have no concept of the rapture. They don't understand that. Again, they're looking for the Messiah to come set up his kingdom, his millennial kingdom, his earthly kingdom. They don't understand the concept of being snatched away. Thomas didn't. He speaks up, right? Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Again, he's very literal, right? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. Listen, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I'll come get you. I'll take you back. Right? Basically, Thomas, don't worry about it. I got it handled. Right? You're going to go to the Father's house. Where's the Father's house? In heaven. Now, again, you have to understand that Israel is looking for a Messiah to set up an earthly kingdom. And what Christ does here in John 14 is he holds before the disciples. Who are the disciples? Ephesians 2, verse 20. They are the foundation of the church. Right? They're the foundation of the church. He holds before them in John 14 an entirely different hope that was promised to the nation of Israel. Don't miss that point. He holds to those who are the foundation of the church an entirely different hope than was the hope of Israel. Because guess what? The church and Israel are two different entities. And God's not through with the nation of Israel. Have I read that someplace? Maybe. He gives them a completely different hope. Now, the promise, too, and the promise of the hope of Israel, again, is in contrast to the hope of the church. Israel's looking for an earthly kingdom. Christ promised his disciples, who are the foundation of the church, Christ promised the church, he would take them out of this world to his father's house. Now, you know what? Nothing like this is ever mentioned in the Old Testament. It's amazing. Well, then it can't be true. Okay. Paul called this event a mysterion, a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. We're not all going to die. Something's going to happen to our body. What's a mystery? It's a sacred secret. It's something that never been before revealed to mankind. Something new. It's new revelation. 
Again, there's a progress in Revelation. God doesn't just dump the whole thing on us. We can't handle the whole thing. There's a progress in Revelation. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Again, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'll receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. The second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church are two completely different events. The second coming comes at the end of the age, at the end of the time of the tribulation, after the tribulation. Christ promises that he will personally take, as he personally returns, his disciples, his followers, back with him to heaven. And when's that going to happen? I told you last week, if you're paying attention, any time. Any moment. The rapture is imminent. The imminent rapture of the church. Now, the promise of Jesus coming in for his church here in John 14, and the reference to the fact that he is going to leave again, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Then he presents the fact of the rapture that, again, I get they don't understand, but he says, look, the understanding of the rapture is the antidote for fear. It's the antidote for worry. And the truth of the rapture, again, for us, should be a great encouragement. should be a great encouragement for them once they figure it out. And I'm sure they've got it pretty down well now, right? But it's the blessed hope for us. Right? The, the, Christ is saying, look, you don't have to worry. You're going to soon depart and go back with the Father. Now, you'll notice in that text, there's no uh, references to trials, no references to tribulations, no signs of whatever in the air or the sky and water. The rapture comes and Christ comes to rescue his people. But there are signs just at the second coming, before the second coming. Lots of signs. Birth pangs. I think we're experiencing some birth pangs. We're not here at the day of the Lord, but we're experiencing birth pangs. And I never had a baby. I I watched my wife have a few of them. Okay, what happens? The birth pangs start very small. They get bigger and bigger. And then they come closer together. Right? Right? And that's what we're experiencing. And when the rapture happens and it kicks off the time of the tribulation, there's going to be some big ones. It's going to be a time like the world has never seen before. But again, the rapture of the church and the second coming are two separate events. John 14, just a foundational passage. Now look over to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16. And all I'm going to do is just barely introduce this, all right? So you don't have to be worried that I'm going to keep you for like an hour and 15 minutes like I do on a Sunday morning. And there are eight events that are listed in this text that occur at the rapture. And what you have to understand in the context here is this is a pastoral portion of Scripture. This is not... Uh, down and dirty eschatology just for the sake of I know more than you do and I'm going to show you. No, this is a pastoral portion of Scripture. He's trying to give, Paul's trying to give hope to grieving people because they have loved ones and have died and they, they want to know what has happened to them. And he says, look, without a shadow of a doubt, they're one day going to be reunited with their loved ones. They're going to see their loved friends, their saved loved friends. I'll go back to verse 13 first. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those of the rest who have no hope. Now, again, asleep is a euphemism. 
for those who are dead and those who have no hope or the unsaved. I have been to lots of funerals, and I bet you have too, right? Where people have no hope. No hope. And I've been to funerals where people have hope. There's still sadness, but there's a joy in the Lord because they believe in the resurrection. Oh, verse 14. I should have read my notes in advance. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, look, the truth comes by way of divine revelation, not just from Paul. He's speaking with divine authority. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive will and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, here's the first event. At the resurrection or at the, uh, 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 at the time of the resurrection, uh, the time of uh, the rapture, there's going to be a shout. And it's going to be heard around the world. Not in one locale, but around the world. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Secondly, there's an archangel who's going to be involved leading God's people with the voice of an archangel. There's going to be a trumpet, perhaps referring to the judgments that are about to come upon the world, Revelation 6 and so on. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And there's going to be a resurrection. Right, the fourth point, there's going to be a resurrection. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, it's not here, but again, it's in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 57. He says, that's where he says, we're all getting new bodies. Praise the Lord. Amen, huh? Man, I am done with this one. All right, we're all going to get new bodies. Bodies that aren't corruptible. Bodies that are going to be changed, made incorruptible in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye. Just like Christ's resurrection body was. It was immortal, eternal. Sixth thing. Both groups are going to be caught up together in the clouds. Both the dead and the living believers in Christ. Verse 17, we, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo. Rapture. We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Number seven, we're going to meet the Lord, right? In the heavens. In the air. To meet the Lord in the air. Last thing, verse point eight, we're going to be with the Lord always, right? And thus we shall be with the Lord. Now, verse 18 says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So again, the doctrine of the rapture is not a crazy doctrine. It's a, it's a, a doctrine that's meant to be an encouragement to the believer, to bring hope and comfort. And again, the word rapture is used without question here to indicate the actual removal of people from the earth to heaven. And again, in both of the passages, I know I just barely introduced this one, but in both passages, John 14 and verse Thessalonians passage, there's no intervening events. No signs. Again, the promise is the imminent return of Christ. Meaning, again, he could come at any moment for his church to remove them out of this world, to take them where he is forever. Both John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, are, again, designed to ease the mind of distressed believers. John 14, Jesus comforts the believers who are confused and disturbed about his uh, announcement of departure. And here in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is comforting those who are grieving about lost loved ones. Both passages emphasize the belief that Christ is the central uh, discriminating factor that brings hope. Both passages focus on God and they focus on Christ. Both passages instruct their audience. Both passages, uh, uh, the return of Christ is mentioned in both of them. John says that he will receive them. Christ would receive them. Uh, Paul says here the believers will be caught up to him. 
both passages, the believer's destiny, John 14.3, to myself, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, to meet the Lord. Lots of common phrases between both, right? Reinforces a connection between John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, I know there's probably a lot of questions, and Lord willing, I'll address those if we have an opportunity to meet again next week and go through the passage again, or the next passages. But the truth is, the church is not going through the tribulation. The church is going to heaven. The church is going to heaven. You need to have that hope. And a world that's not offering you anything helpful, you need to have the hope of what God's word says. That's why Christ said in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Because I'm going to deliver the church from the wrath to come. Now, I freely admit that the concept of the rapture is in seed form, if you will, in John 14. But nevertheless, the promise is there. The hope is there. The imminent return of Christ. The hope that the Christian is not wrath. The hope of the Christian is heaven. It's uh, hard to imagine that if the church was going to go through the tribulation, if that was God's intent, Christ's intent for the church to go through the time of the tribulation, it would be very hard to imagine he give that instructions, don't let your heart be troubled. He probably should have said, boy, you better lock and load. Pull your pants up, you know, get your belt tighter and get ready. He didn't say that. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why are we letting our hearts be troubled? Why are we letting our hearts be troubled? Why are we incessantly listening to people who are fools? Oh, but he's Dr. So-and-so, and he knows he is a fool if he doesn't know Christ. He is dead. You might as well go to the graveyard and talk to somebody six feet down as to get your information from dead people who don't know Christ, won't honor him, won't acknowledge him. The world is not a friend to the Christian. And as I said this morning with Pastor Coates, you'll, we're going to find that out pretty soon. We're going to find that out. It's not going to be the coronavirus. It's going to be talking about LGBTQ and so-called transgenderism. That's a health uh, a violation if you speak against that. It's coming. Guarantee you it's coming. How can Christ say, don't let your heart be troubled? Because we shouldn't let our heart be troubled. <laughs> he has a different plan for us. There's a promise of his return for the church. So listen, last statement. John 14 is really the promise of his return. And Lord willing, if we get to it next week, which I hope we do, First Thessalonians is the plan. John, John 14 is the promise. First Thessalonians is the plan. Right? Our hope is in Christ. We're not looking for signs. We're not looking for situations we're not waiting times of trouble and tribulation we're looking for christ our hope is to look up because that's where our hope comes from our father and our god we're thankful for the blessed hope the promised appearing the coming of your son our savior the lord jesus christ you've not destined us for wrath because you poured out your wrath fully upon christ he not only saves us in time he saves us eternally he saves us from the wrath that is coming upon the wicked and repentant And we should rejoice in that goodness. We should thank you and thank you often. And we should refocus our attention, not on the world, not on the things of the world. Again, the birth pangs are just coming. They're coming quicker and quicker, and they're going to come with more intensity. In a world that has completely rejected you, turned their back upon your mercy and grace, and therefore you promised to bring judgment upon those who refuse your mercy. And all we're seeing in the world that we're living in is just depraved minds at work. 
people who cannot make a logical decision. It was because they rejected Christ. Therefore, you give them over to their own depravity. But we're not part of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We have a different destiny, a different Savior, a different Father. Tremendous hope. We are to take these words and encourage each other with them. And I pray we do that thing in Christ's name. Amen.